Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. I'm Kathy Bird. This is Fresh Art International. We've been amplifying the voices of contemporary artists, curators, designers, and filmmakers since 2011. In 2017, I became a member of the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art during IKT's convening in Norway. Traditionally, IKT meets in a different location each year. Locals organize a topical program and introduce their cultural landscape. In 2022, we travel from around the world to Kentucky in the Appalachian region of the United States. The uninitiated might consider this a remote context for conversations around international contemporary art. Instead, we find Appalachia a nuanced cultural and geographic space. This episode explores the evolving and inclusive concept of Global Appalachia, presented during the 2022 IKT gathering. We begin by recording stories during the Global Appalachia Symposium hosted at the Speed Museum in Louisville. Then we seek out conversations to illuminate other perspectives on the subject. Rebecca Atkins Fletcher takes us on a drive through Central Appalachia. A medical and cultural anthropologist, she teaches at East Tennessee State University. Fletcher immerses us in the concept of a global Appalachia, showing us how defining moments in regional history are deeply tied to the land. Allow me to introduce you to my favorite place. Roan Mountain is 45 minutes from my university office in East Tennessee and South Central Appalachia. This beautiful landscape is my refuge, a place I can visit, touch the earth, and find my center. Places become special because we impart meaning to them. This is placemaking. Places are built by human interactions. We engage in placemaking in the construction of geographical spaces and political boundaries. Appalachia is a space that has shifting populations, home to Native American groups for at least 12,000 years. As the numerous trails on the map indicate, people in central and southern Appalachia have never been isolated, contrary to the regional stereotypes. The trails show they have been on the move. Appalachia has been a global region since at least 1540, when DeSoto and the Spanish exploration found expansive civilizations of Native Americans with advanced agricultural economies and cultural markers of city making. The 1700s pioneer settlements moved west, largely displacing Native American groups through treaty and through violence. The region became home to diverse ethnic and cultural peoples and traditions from Western and Eastern Europe and West Africa as free as indentured and enslaved persons. The region's political map was defined by the Federal Appalachian Regional Commission. Fletcher explains that this commission began its geographical study in the 1960s as part of the War on Poverty. 
One in three Appalachian residents lived in poverty. Ironically, the people living in, in a region rich in natural resources, such as timber, copper, iron, coal, and natural gas, and working to fuel the furnaces of industry and the energy needs of much of the nation and the world, struggled to get by. Extracting the rich resources of Appalachia has had a critical effect on the social and physical landscape. The crisis of environmental degradation is all the more disturbing when we consider the Appalachian Mountains at 500 million years old are one of the oldest terrestrial environments on the Earth. The deep age, coupled with the various ridges, steep slopes and gorges, and wide valleys provide many microclimates and biomes. It supports one of the most diverse ecologies on Earth. Fletcher reminds us that the Appalachian Trail is key to conversations about boundaries and connectivity and extends far beyond U.S. territory. The longest-hiking-only footpath in the world is an international phenomenon. The Appalachian mountain ranges are present around the perimeter of the Atlantic, and we now have 279 miles of the International Appalachian Trail in Northern Ireland. Further international connections are evident between the Appalachian Trail and Japan's Shiensu Trail, especially regarding rural revitalization. Beyond the similarity of rolling hills and geology, international cultural connections have long been evident between Appalachia, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. More recent international connections of global mountain communities began in 2013 with the exploration of Appalachian Carpathian mountain communities in Ukraine and Romania. Ukraine and Appalachia share many similar traditions, including agricultural economies, traditional handicrafts, and contending with environmental pollution. Fletcher sums up the vital role of Appalachia in the world today, an exemplar of contemporary placemaking. Appalachia serves as a mirror for the nation, as well as the effects of global neoliberalism. As we trace placemaking processes, we are better able to challenge barriers and disrupt the processes of difference-making that lead to disparities, including neoliberal expansion and natural resource extractive industries that are altering the global climate. Challenging boundaries moves us forward in efforts of idea exchange and solution-seeking across borders and boundaries. Let this moment be a call to reimagine placemaking as a means to think critically, expand connections, challenge boundaries, and behold the beauty of meaningful places. Frank X. Walker is a local artist, writer, and scholar. The first African-American writer to be named Kentucky Poet Laureate. He teaches at the University of Kentucky Lexington. Walker takes the microphone to dispel certain mainstream misconceptions about Appalachia. He introduces the black bone of this region. Welcome to Kentucky. What I'd like to do with my time is kind of walk you through 31 years of history that deal with the word Appalachia. The thing about Appalachia you already know is that you understand the geographical confines that limit it to this 13-state region. It's a large swath of the United States that extends from southern New York to the deep south. This idea that it's an all-white space full of lawless individuals has been greatly advanced in, in mass media and on television. 
In spite of the truth and the reality, Charleston, West Virginia, Knoxville, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Chattanooga, Winston-Salem, and Birmingham have extremely large African-American populations. These are cities inside Appalachia. If you travel to these spaces like Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati has one of the largest Appalachian populations outside of Appalachia. Uh, many people moved there to work and stayed, and it's close enough where you can drive back and forth on the weekends. Don't limit your ideas or concept of the region to those lines. This idea of Appalachia is something that's important to me. In 2005, it actually appeared for the first time in the New Oxford American Dictionary. The first time it was used in the early 90s, there's a group of poets, Mitchell Douglas, Ricardo Nazario Colon, Nikki Finney, and Kelly Ellis. And all of us were meeting at the University of Kentucky in the back room just talking about poetry. And one of the members brought a poem to the group and it used the word Appalachia for the first time. In 1991, the dictionary definition said, Appalachians were the white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. What were you if you weren't white? and you lived in the same space. This meeting went on to become a long-lasting collective of Afrolachian poets, many of whom continued to work in teaching academies across the United States. Some of the other things we've been involved in to kind of document and claim space in the region, uh, this journal, Pluck, not only features creative writing, but it tries to highlight dance and performance and music and visual art of the region, and scholarly articles as well. And it's been around for almost two decades now. The 10th anniversary of the Appalachian Poets, which would have been 2001, we produced a video documentary called Cold Black Voices, which is still in circulation. And it featured many of the founders of the organization reading their work and talking about the region and telling stories that really document what it's like to be in this often mischaracterized space. We produced the 25 Years of the Appalachian Poets Black Bone Anthology, which uh, is still in print and in circulation and features some of the highlights of our best work. In the last 30 years, Walker has focused his research on the Black history of the region. There would be no Black History Month without Carter G. Woodson, who is from New Canton, Virginia, in Appalachia. August Wilson, uh, one of the most important playwrights in American history the author of 10 very important plays, including Fences and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Pittsburgh native, lived in the Hill District, a large African-American community inside Appalachia, generally isn't talked about as a member of Appalachia. Angela Davis, a very well-known activist and member of the Black Panthers from Birmingham, Alabama. Nikki Giovanni, a resident of Knoxville, Tennessee. Sonia Sanchez, also from Birmingham. I mean, these are luminaries in African-American history who hail from Appalachia, but people don't talk about them and Appalachia in the same sentence. They talk about them in African-American history context, but not Appalachian context. If you've seen or heard about Black Panther, the movie, Chadwick Boseman is Appalachian, or as we like to say, Afrolachian. If you're a fan of funk music, you know that's George Clinton but you probably never heard that George Clinton is from Appalachia. Nina Simone, Tryon, North Carolina, also from Appalachia. But you almost never hear these individuals discussed or written about in the context as being a resident of the same region that we're talking about today. That's been one of my missions to challenge people's notion of who lives there. 
who has lived there and who the space belongs to. Local artists who take the stage at the symposium add dimension to the term Appalachian. Elizabeth Mesa Gaido is a Cuban-American artist who calls Kentucky home. I am not here to represent Appalachian people per se, but more so the diversity of individuals that choose to live and call Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky home. I have lived in uh, Moorhead, Kentucky for over 30 years, where I have a studio and also am teaching at Moorhead State University. Uh, like many Eastern Kentuckians, I have a strong connection with family and family history, and my art practice centers around that. My family came from Cuba in the early 1960s after the revolution and they settled in Hialeah, Florida as political exiles. And that one historical event has played a huge role in and out of the 30 years of my art practice, where I have created work about immigration, marginality, assimilation, politics, history, inequity, identity, many different topics. Mesa Gaido shows us a project that revolves around the Latino craft of making colorful piñatas for birthday parties. Traditionally, the whimsical forms are designed with a hollow center that can be filled with candy and treats, released when children crack open the piñata. The artist works with craftspeople to make hers in the shape of suitcases. She evokes the practice of Cuban immigrants to the United States, carrying household and personal items to their relatives on visits to Cuba. The piñatas themselves are Cuban. They have these ribbons that hang below, and unlike the typical piñatas many people are familiar with, this is a collective act where children will come together and pull on the ribbons collectively to release the contents. So I thought about this idea of the Cuban exile population that is coming together to essentially assist all of the Cubans on the island in the same kind of way, bringing these items that are in need. The work is really meant to draw attention to what is happening in Cuba or has been happening in Cuba. Che Guevara and Castro's brothers' revolution was supposed to help remedy social and economic injustice and inequity. And here we are six decades later where Cuban exiles are the ones who are really trying to make a difference and assist people in need. I think that this installation is just one example of the kind of diverse and complex global conversations that are happening in Eastern Kentucky and locally. Born in Iraq, Artist Vian Sora is now a United States citizen residing in Louisville, Kentucky. As a painter, I primarily work with mixed media, pigments, and oils on canvas. And my paintings often morph gestural abstraction with figuration. My practice is informed by my experience of conflict and displacement, such as those that dominate my home, Iraq. The imagery and iconography from the past cultures of Mesopotamia and the lost Iraqi narratives are interlaced within my paintings that are intuitively developed. Some might see my work as a depiction of the horrors of war, but that's not necessarily my intention, though all of us Iraqis carry the scars and memories of conflict. My family gained asylum in Dubai in 2007, and we lived together for the next three years in 2009, my husband and I moved to Louisville. That's the narrative that brought me to Appalachia. Sora shows us Riverbed, 
an abstract painting that is largely yellow, orange, and green on a blue background. A shape that resembles a figure is in the bottom left corner of the composition. This work actually I began before the tornado of December 2021 that tore through Kentucky, and the work is responding to a destroyed environment. Riverbed is a typical example where my work depicts multiple references to contradicting cultures, women, mythology, geography, and one realm. The artist talks about two recent paintings. Both mixed media abstractions are rendered in deep yellow, brown, and dark green on a blue background. This is Outer World and Rebirth. They are responding to moments of returning to social spaces influenced by our lockdowns and COVID-19 quarantine. In this work, like others, my subject matter is subsumed within the act of painting, and I try not to let it overtake the formal possibilities of the medium, but rather to use the medium to give expressive power to the ideas I'm addressing. As I'm now a citizen of the United States, the struggles to get to this point have deeply affected the way I work. The move to the West added diverse influences that have helped shape the development of my painting practice. I look at the artists here and I am proud to say that we have a rich depth of talent and diversity. This is what I think the larger art scenes may have forgotten. The smaller cities are still progressing and pushing boundaries that must be changed if we are to improve our collective societies no matter where we call home. During the symposium, the Kentucky-born painter Sarah Evans tells a few of the stories behind her complex portraits. Her work conveys both the riches and ravages of growing up in the region. Whenever I think about Global Appalachia and what we're talking about today, I find that Global Appalachia to me is, is a rhythm. It's a rhythm of a place that's not only bound by the geography, but by the people that inhabit it. I'm originally from Bath County, Kentucky, which is a northeastern part of Kentucky, which sits right in the foothills of Appalachia. Within my work, what I try to do is, is use contemporary painting to make Appalachia a contemporary subject. But I love painting conversations. I love painting conversations that really talk about the way that I grew up, that talk about generational poverty, that talk about generational trauma. Along the lines of conversation, I find that over the past year, I've really been interested in looking at who's leading these conversations and, and rural places, and especially in Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky. And one of the conversations that I really wanted to look at was how are these generations passing down the idea of guns and, and gun safety and gun law? In her painting, The Bond, an older woman and a young man bond over guns. Outdoors in a rural setting, the woman takes aim at a target affixed to a fence, while the young man points his gun up perhaps at a can he just tossed into the air. Uh, this painting is, is really, you know, separating who's the shooter and what's being shot at, and really talking about how the generations are coming together and how they're talking about guns and the way that this, for me, and, and coming from a rural place, guns were really a pastime in a way that we could, we could get through the day. I have, uh, I've been really diving deep into how my queerness as a young queer woman, how that, how that looks in rural Kentucky. I find that a lot of the ways that I've expressed myself as a queer woman and as a butch woman, I found that a lot of the masculinity within my life was, was found through the women within my life. And so I wanted to represent these women and I wanted to represent these women that, uh, that are a little bit more butch. And especially within my newer work, I've been trying to use these sort of 
modes of illustration and cartoons to give the symbolism of emotion. Evan shows us the painting, looking for a fight. A woman sits leaning against the front porch of a house, an empty six-pack of beer strewn in the grass beside her. She's in a stupor. Cartoon bluebirds are flying around her head. Behind her, another female figure stands holding a beer and a cigarette. I hope that my work continues to really kind of aid viewers into understanding the diversity within Appalachia. And I'll say this, I am just a sliver from Eastern Kentucky. There's many, many more artists that are coming out of those hills. And I hope that you all take the time today to really think about those artists and especially really think about what you don't know about rural communities. Artist Anissa Lewis believes in the power of place too. Lewis was born and raised in Covington, Kentucky, an hour and a half north of Louisville. Situated on the Ohio River, her hometown is famously known through Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. My work is about power of voice, memory, time, history, loss and memorialization, where places and bodies are sites of resistance. I come from a working class family of three children. And with each baby, my father got a little better job. So we were able to move to a little bit of a better house. And my house was on Pleasant Street. Those were my first memories. Now, I was incredibly loved and poured into by my community and my family. And actually, during that time, since I'm a baby of the 80s, in our area, community was synonymous with family, one and the same. So I have an MFA at Yale in painting and printmaking. My work is storytelling and ethnography, interactive installation, photo, and video. Coming home has changed the trajectory of everything of my work and what I thought I knew it meant to be an artist and to create work and what I thought art is. My studio, my audience is synonymous with community. That is where my work happens and that is for whom my work is. Lewis talks about a project that brought her back to Pleasant Street and a neighborhood that was unrecognizable. Instead of a row of houses and families with children, she found abandoned property, vacant lots, and empty streets. I wanted to reacclimate and to reacquaint myself with what it meant to come from Pleasant Street, to come from Eastside in Covington, Kentucky, and where I grew up. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it. Like, literally couldn't find it. The places weren't there. The people weren't there. And so I had more questions than I did answers. And I needed a place to put and to hold my memories, my grief, and my gratitude. So this body of work comes from documenting every single part of Pleasant Street for that two blocks, and then mining my childhood photos to then place atop those homes, those memories, those experiences because I wanted to acknowledge that history, those stories, that life that was there at that time. So I viewed it very much as a form of reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is a constant theme in the work of Hannah Drake, a blogger, activist, public speaker, poet, and author of 11 books. In these excerpts from her performance of Spaces, she speaks out on politics, feminism, and race. It is difficult to stand in spaces, spaces that weren't designed for me, spaces that were not created for people that look like me, spaces that scream, you do not belong here, spaces that feel like sandpaper against my blackness, coarse and rough and painful and uneasy. Spaces that are void of signs, but still I can see them hanging in a not-so-distant memory. It is difficult to stand in these spaces and be me, fully me. Code-switching my vernacular to make you feel comfortable. Why must my life dress itself up in discomfort for you to feel at ease? Why must my hair look a certain way in these spaces? Why is my gender an issue in these spaces? Why does my skin feel so heavy in these spaces? It is for everyone that will come after me, for them to know that they have a right to be in these spaces, to have a seat at the table, in these spaces to have a voice, in these spaces to have influence, in these spaces you see that is why I stand in these spaces even when it makes me uncomfortable. And now some of you, you sit looking at me, and now you feel uncomfortable. But today you have heard me. You cannot unsee me. In this space, I belong. In this space, we are here, and we belong here. In this space. A few evenings later, the gazebo outside the Benham Schoolhouse Inn serves as a recording studio for our conversation with a new IKT member. Carlotta Contreras Cotterbe was born in the Philippines. She now directs the Slocum Gallery at the University of Tennessee. We're interested in how she defines her role in Appalachia. Before moving here, I was a gallery director for seven years in the Philippines. I was very active in the national art scene in Manila. I was a board director for the Art Association of the Philippines and a committee member for the National Commission for Culture and the Arts. So moving to Johnson City was a little bit a challenge because it's not the center of the art world. When I came here as an outsider, I don't want to impose what my programming will be. I wanted to see what does my community need from me and how can I provide it? I feel in the museum world, we really need to develop Appalachian curators who understand these small cities or these small migrant communities, these small pocket communities all over the country that are not always given visibility. So I need to bring the world here. I also realize the world needs to know about Appalachia. So I started to do programming promoting Appalachian art. Right now, my project, we have an exhibit featuring Black Appalachians. 
we have featured Latin Americans and, and Asian Americans from the South, from Appalachia. O on my first few years, I will do international exchange exhibitions with Italy and South Korea and the Philippines, bringing our faculty shows to them and bringing their artists to East Tennessee. Early on, Cote Bay recognized the strength of craft in the region. There are cultural treasures. And what I noticed at the start is the strong studio craft and craft practice. And now I'm working on the 100 years history of Black Tennessee craft artists. We have amazing craft schools at Arrowmont, in Penland, in the Appalachian Craft Center. There's a lot of institutions that were built upon traditional practice, and I wanted to explore that. Erin Lee Antonak is an indigenous artist curator. Currently based in New Orleans, she's a guest at IKT Kentucky. When we meet while touring Louisville's Portland Art District, she introduces the craft practices that she learned as a child. I am half Iroquois, the Oneida Indian Nation of New York, and I was raised making traditional Iroquois and Oneida-specific crafts. Summers were spent going to powwows, so I made a lot of sellable necklaces, earrings, headbands, all these powwow crafts to sell, but I was also taught to make basketry and carve and make rattles and traditional regalia. I come from a long line of women who braid corn husk which is a very Iroquois tradition, and braiding corn husk is actually a big part of my practice. Growing up, my grandfather was the last traditional chief of the Oneidas, and my family was really well known for our traditional craft and materials, and my mother was an anthropologist. And so I grew up going to a lot of museums, but Native American art at that point in time was only shown at anthropological institutions and history museums, so I was never really exposed to contemporary art. And then when I was 15 years old, I went to Bard College. I went to study organic chemistry because I come from a long line of artists, but I'd never seen contemporary art, so I only saw traditional art, and I knew that wasn't for me. So then at Bard, I studied with Judy Pfaff and Amy Silman and Ed Smith and William Tucker, and that's when I realized that I was an artist and trying to figure out how to incorporate these traditional ways of making into a contemporary art practice. After spending a decade immersed in the New Orleans art scene, Antonac was unexpectedly called home just days before Hurricane Katrina struck the southern coast of Louisiana in 2005. Just before Hurricane Katrina hit, my mother had a stroke when she was 50 years old and was left paralyzed. I returned back to New York and was immediately thrown full on back to my culture. A few weeks after we meet in Kentucky, I reach out to Erin Lee Antonac to continue our conversation. I want to find out how her unforeseen homecoming influenced her thinking about craft and culture. My mother was given traditional ceremonies and I was asked to break a cornhouse mask for her ceremony, which is something that the women in my family have been doing for thousands of years. Also, my mother had a bunch of orders people had placed with her to make traditional craft items. And so I wanted to fulfill those, those orders while she was in the hospital. And so I started making these corn husk dolls and salt bottles and 
working in these ways that I hadn't worked in in about 15 years. My mother was very sick for 13 years and it really made me consider my place in my culture as a half native person who was raised fairly typically as I didn't live on the reservation, but I had this kind of mixed upbringing between um, a school where there are no native people and then spending summers with my extended family who are all native. And my second son was born 10 days after my mother died, after she was paralyzed for 13 years. And that's really when a big change came to my work. I really started thinking about how I'm no longer the recipient of culture. I'm no longer the recipient of my ancestors. I mean, I am those things, but I'm now also part of that chain moving forward. I now am not the last in line. And how do I evolve my culture? How am I connected to my ancestors? So much of my work is about using craft, working with these traditional materials in innovative and contemporary ways to see what that can activate kind of in my body. Like I'm curious about how craft activates our DNA, like traditional craft, like the crafts that my, my grandmothers did a thousand years ago, the way they use their hands, the materials, the scents, the textures, like how does that affect me? How does that affect my body? In native communities, we're often told about this concept of inherited trauma. I see craft as a way to access inherited resiliency. How is the Cornhusk braid playing a part in your art making now? The New York State Museum just acquired two of my large scale Cornhusk sculptures that include the last of that braid that I made for my mother. The first major sculpture were using a lot of the braids that I had made for her um, before her stroke. And that'll be going into a collection that'll show alongside of my grandfather's work. My brother's in the collection as well. And it felt like a, the right place for them to go. I feel really good about that. Antonak's home base has always been the Oneida Nation of upstate New York, at the far north of the region known as Appalachia. Uh, I want to bring our conversation back to the symposium with IKT in Kentucky, where they brought up all the 13 states that are part of Appalachia. And that Oneida Nation is situated there. So I'm wondering, as you were growing up and now when you think about your home base as a Native American, did you think about it being part of Appalachia? No, not at all. <laughs> growing up, it wasn't really until the last several years that I really got a sense of that. And it was a lot of curators approaching me, putting together shows about Appalachia. I'm in one right now that's touring. It's at West Virginia University and it's called Indigenous Appalachia. I think the growing interest in Appalachia as a very defined region with a defined culture that extends beyond just the stereotypical version of it. These are not hard lines that define culture. What was your impression of how global Appalachia was presented in Kentucky? Well, Kentucky is surprising. I mean, I've driven through there before. It was pretty over the top in terms of the quality of work and the artists that were showing in the collections there were really high caliber and really stunning. Is there anything else you are thinking that you want to be sure you say? I think just we're at a point in time where 
we're able to look back. The United States is very young as a country. And I think there's an opportunity to redefine the boundaries of culture or the regions and pockets of culture that are still not homogenized. I I think we're such a big country that there are so many different cultural regions that are so very specific. And I think that it's really exciting to be able to start looking beyond New York, start looking beyond LA and seeing what's happening within the country culturally. I'm Kathy Bird. This is the Fresh Art International Podcast. Today's episode is the third in our three-part series, bearing witness to the 2022 gathering of the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art in Kentucky. Generations of curators, poets, and artists from a world of cultures have found their way across time and space to build communities in this region. Here and now, Global Appalachia is where their 21st century contemporaries continue to shape a boundless future with an array of diverse perspectives on the meaning of home and tradition. If you like what you're hearing, please take a few minutes to rate and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you to the Association of International Curators of Contemporary Art and the Great Meadows Foundation for funding our participation in the IKT Kentucky Congress. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, and listeners like you make Fresh Art International possible. When you visit our site, you'll find other episodes about art and culture from around the globe. While you're there, sign up for our news and give a donation to support these stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.